If you're like me, you're probably conservative with your finances. After all, it's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep. Personally, I love this quote from rich dad Robert Kiyosaki and think it's never been more important. Because with inflation at a record high of 8.6% and the economy heading for a recession, we're losing money whether we invest it in stocks or keep it in the bank. So what should you do? Well, experts at Morgan Stanley suggest putting money into safer alternative assets like high-end art. Why art? Well, the value of works by legends like Picasso and Warhol has a near zero correlation with stocks, meaning art can help protect your investment portfolio from risks. Plus, it can still drastically increase in value despite the chaos in the world. For instance, the art investing platform Masterworks handed investors over 30% net returns from four separate paintings since 2019. Of course, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But with gains like that, I can see why members have invested over $500 million in their paintings. Now, I want you to all have smart, diversified portfolios. It's crucial. I'm delighted to report that Masterworks is offering a special deal. If you go to masterworks.io slash sad truth, you get priority access today. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. Again, that's masterworks.io slash sad truth. Here we go. Hey guys, uh, long fan of uh, Brian Callen. I finally somehow convinced him to come on my show. Uh, I'm going to introduce who you are, but first say hello. How you guys doing? Hey, look at this guy trying to sport. By the way, I had I had a beard for something like 10 years, and then I went to Southern California for five weeks, decided to take off the beard to give the glorious uh, Middle Eastern skin a bit of rest. And and now I think everybody's saying, you've got to b- grow back the professorial beard, so it's coming back. What do you think? I, I like I like the scruff. I like the scruff, man. I, I think it looks great. Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm at 55 years old now. I tend to bring my beard down because I just get grayer and grayer. And so I'll do whatever I can. I'll do, I'm, I'm wearing Invisalign. You know, the dentist said your teeth are a mess. So now I'm in, I'm in adult braces. It's, it, it only goes downhill from here. You get to a certain age at 55, let it go. Because you, know, you can fight gravity. But, you, you know, it's that Red Queen pro- problem where you have to run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place. And so here we go. You come to terms with your limitations. <laughs> All right. So let me, let me introduce you uh, for the few people who have lived on another planet. Stand-up comedian, actor, podcaster. Current podcast is titled The Fighter and the Kid, co-hosted with uh, your friend Brandon Schaub. You have a new YouTube show, Best of with Brian Callen, which we can talk about. Now, I... Of all of you, so you've been on countless shows, uh, News Radio, Frasier, The King of Queens, How I Met Your Mother, The Goldbergs, Entourage. You've been on many movies, Hangover 1, 2, Old School. The one that got my kids excited. You ready? Yeah. Uh, They've become huge fans of The King of Queens. So I'm kind of reliving The King of Queens through their eyes, which is fantastic. It's one of my favorite shows. And you're the guy on the show where he's trying to convince you to invite him to the barbecue, correct? That's exactly right. When I told this to my son, 
it's it's as if I was telling him we're interviewing Michael Jordan. He's like, oh, I have to meet him. But they left, unfortunately, to go see my in-laws. So it's amazing the power that these moments, when we bring in people into the into our living room, tell us about any of these shows. Take it away. You've got so many stories. Go for it. Well, I think that what's interesting about when you when you've grown up watching somebody, you know, for or, or just they, they there's something about watching someone under favorable circumstances, especially if they're making you laugh. There is something very mysterious about that. And then when that fourth wall is broken and they're in front of you. You know, I did a reading one time with Tom Cruise. And then uh, six months later, I, I got to speak to him just sort of one-on-one for an hour, an hour and a half. I couldn't stop just looking at his face. Yeah. I, I was so beside myself. And I was a grown man. I was probably 40. But I was so excited to be there. And, and, and it was because I had grown up with him. I met Al Pacino. It was the same thing. I made a fool of myself. I you know, one thing you never say to Al Pacino ever is don't mention his movies. I know this. I'm in the business. And what, the first thing I said, the first thing I said, even though the voice is saying don't mention his movies, act normal, I looked at him and I said, I just finished watching Scarface again. And you know what he did? He went, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but were you able to then recover from that and have a good conversation? No. No, I wasn't, Gag. No, I wasn't. I'm oh. glad you asked. You know? So, so uh, celebrity or whatever you want to call it is a strange thing for all of us. Even if other people look at you and they think you're something because you don't feel that way. I'm just showing up and acting. Yeah. And, and the process, I think if, every, if people could see what acting is really about, what it really is like to sit on a, it, to be in a movie, they would not want to be actors because it's so tedious piecemeal it's done you know i was on the the joker for five days with joaquin phoenix i didn't they i, I ended up on the cutting room floor but i was dressed like a washed up male stripper that's a whole nother story and uh but but watching him work watching that guy eat an apple a day and smoke cigarettes to stay as skinny as he was and to stay in character i can't do that, that that's why he won an oscar i can't do it I got to tell you, I'm glad you mentioned Joker because I was, as I was preparing for the intro, I saw that you, you know, you had the credits of Joker, but I didn't remember seeing you in that. Now, I, I as a general rule, I despise actors. Like I have great. <laughs> no, but it's, it really is true. Your heart to the right place. <laughs> exactly. Now, on the other hand, you know, Anthony Hopkins and Al Pacino and uh, Joaquin Phoenix in, in Joker, that's those are real actors. They're thespians. Uh, I was watching him in the final scene where he's kind of standing on the car. I had uh, I had goosebumps all over my body. To me, he was like Lionel Messi, if you know soccer. When you watch Lionel Messi, you, I, you know my my wife. My, whenever my wife hears me screaming in the house, like, and she goes, "Well, whenever God screams like a little girl, it's probably because he's watching Lionel Messi." So, uh, how do you? How was it interacting with Joaquin Phoenix? I mean, I, I love that you said that he only ate an apple, method acted, the whole thing. Tell us about that. Well, so when you work with people like that, um, he doesn't say hi or bye. You're in the room with him, and he doesn't get out of character. He doesn't even look at you. Really? And, 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 I, and I, I respect that. I think what, and I, I share your sort of contempt in some ways of actors, including of myself. But... Um, I, I think because we have this idea that a lot of times you can really, you, it's very difficult to make it in the business, but you also are treated like royalty. And so people like that get an inflated so, sense of self-importance and 
and, and even think of themselves sometimes as historically significant, which is nothing less than embarrassing. But I think that whenever we look at a guy like Christian Bale or we look at a guy like Joaquin Phoenix, what we're actually seeing is someone truly involved in the endeavor and the impossible endeavor in many ways of the courageous endeavor uh, of, of original self-expression. Right. The, the reason we love great artists is because they do something that shocks us. And it doesn't just shock us. It also brings us into this state of arrested development or high relief where we, we, we kind of are reminded. If you watch a great Shakespeare play, if you listen to a great symphony, if you watch Yo-Yo Ma do what he does on a cello, and the list goes on. I think there's something that um, reminds us of how great human beings can be when, when they truly realize their full potential. And you know, a little, a little insider information on, on Joker, Todd Phillips, who for my money is one of the greatest filmmakers ever. That's a masterpiece. He's a, he's a, he's a genius. But Todd Phillips, and I, I've had the privilege of knowing him for almost over 20 years now, Todd, when he went out to various, I'm, I'm a little speaking a little out of school, but I happen to know that there were other actors that were on that list. You know, they were trying to think of who could play Joker. And most actors, no matter how good they are, would look at that role and, and start quaking in their boots. It's a terrifying role right. to take on because everybody is waiting for you to fail. And... Joaquin Phoenix was actually recommended by another great actor. I don't want to get into too many details here. But can you can you say who it is, or you're, you're, you're... Uh, maybe I can. I, I mean, uh, um, I I think I think I'm. I, I, boy, I don't, I, Todd would be mad at me. I don't want to. I don't want to. Okay, so don't 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 do it. Then. Yeah, but 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 there when when any time you have a role like that, the studio will come to you and say, "Here are the here are the ideas." Even if you're Todd Phillips, you, you've got a list of very short list of actors. Those actors, all of them, including, I'm sure, Joaquin Phoenix, I mean, that's a very scary process. So what you're watching is not only just original self-expression, but someone who had the courage to make these choices. And when we were doing the scene, he improvised things that, that were shocking, shocking. Wow. We thought he broke his hand when he punched the clock. He was trying to punch the clock. That wasn't in the script. I pretended to shoot myself at one point, and he, he went like this and, and fell back. And Todd Phillips came over and goes, don't do that again. Don't do that. Because <laughs> you never know what he was going to do. So he was in a state. Wow. And I think that what I, what I love about any kind of art acting is all of us, you don't have to be an expert. All of us, when you see Christian Bale in The Fighter, you see Joaquin Phoenix in The Joker, all of us immediately, I don't care if you're a fool or the most sophisticated movie buff in the world, we stop. Yeah. We stop. <laughs> We get mesmerized. And what happens when you get mesmerized? What really happens? Let's talk about that. What really happens when you watch something inspiring? You forget you're human for a while. Right. You forget you have to go to the bathroom. You forget you, have, you like sex. You forget about food. You, you, you just somehow go, you say to yourself, it's probably as close to witnessing God as you, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? That yeah. It, it, it really is. I mean, atheist, but you, you just get overly inspired. When Pele did that kick. Scissors kick, yes, of course. You know, people cried. Yeah. They cried because they were overwhelmed with how beautiful life can be. 
Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, that's spoken like a real lover of the craft. So let me ask you this. I mean, I, I, as you probably know, I, I, I study human psychology. Uh, and so I'm interested in, so for example, if I told you, well, what, what makes Michael Jordan so great? We could probably break down several elements that makes it that he was more likely to be great than you might have been as a basketball player. So if we take all of the people who wish to break out into acting, but yet they don't become Anthony uh, Hopkins. Uh, per- no, which which one is Sir, the, the one from Silence of the Lambs is which one? Hopkins? An- Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. Or, or if it's the guy from Joker or so on. It, are there a set of personality traits that they score high or low on that makes them more likely to be great actors than the rest of us? You know, that's a, that's a, it's a little bit like saying who's going to be a great quarterback in the NFL. There are so many moving parts. Um, and I don't think that's, I, I do think from my experience, the big stars that I know, the, the people that have really become huge are inhumanly disciplined. And they, they, and, and they have a deep love for the craft for, for whatever reason, and probably some healthy dysfunction. You think so, huh? Yes, I don't, listen, I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think you need to love yourself to be successful in life. In fact, in fact, you should always have this queer sense of dissatisfaction and inadequacy. I really believe that. That you, that you try to then, com- you try to compensate for that inadequacy always. by being good. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Gad, I've listened to you. You're a very smart man. Thank you, you know a lot. I love listening to your perspective. I love what you study. You know, you study the idea of hormones and how they affect yeah. buying. There's all this stuff that you do. But I bet that part of the reason that you work so hard is because you don't think of yourself as a genius or really smart at all. No, it's always a struggle. You know, you're always learning and the, 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 the idea is how do, how, do you, how do you come up with something original? You're in the same business. When you write a book or yeah, when you have your exactly. you're trying to, it's always a struggle. So I don't think that loving yourself, I don't, I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, I hate that expression, believe in yourself. What do you mean believe in myself? Kiss my ass. If I learn how to navigate these rough waters, I'll believe in myself. But they're, they've got to be very specific rough waters. But, if I put you in the ring with a fighter and you don't know how to fight, you're not going to believe in yourself. But I wonder if, so in, in, in any creative process, there is uncertainty and, and, and you know so on. But I wonder if in acting, it's even more brutal in that the difference between the person who makes it or not is often up to some vagaries that are really outside the control of the person who is auditioning, right? So so we all go through rejection. So if you look at, for example, the, the average rejection rate of a top academic journal, you're talking about 95% rejection rate. And this, this is involving all people who are the top of the top. 95% of their papers are going to be rejected. So that's okay. Which but is probably a good thing in academia, but keep going. Yeah, right. But, but at least you'd like to think, notwithstanding what's going on in academia today, that I have a better sense of why my paper was rejected or not. Not always, but at least there's some sense. You know, the theoretical... Uh, conceptual idea wasn't well developed, or I should have used another in us. But in 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 acting, it's not linear. It, exactly. So then, does that then cause a, a fracture of the self? Because I'm constantly rejected, and I don't know how I should change to become successful. But I really want to make it. But I don't know if it's going to happen for me. Which is why I hate acting. Right. Which is why I have no loyalty to acting. Which is why acting is, for the most part, a heartbreak for all of us. 
I love stand-up comedy. I was going to come to that. Okay, exactly. And the reason I love stand-up comedy is because I write it, and it's so black and white. You're either laughing or you're not. You, there are three things you can't fake, I always say. Comedy, they're either laughing or not. Fighting, you're either on the, on the canvas or you're not. And dance. You Dan- can either dance or you can't. And let me interject. I- oh, and singing. Probably my first conversation ever with our mutual friend, Joe Rogo, when I was on a show, he looked at me. And of all the things we've talked about, it's one of the things that that stayed in my mind the most is he said almost the same thing that you just said, but he linked it to my my work. He said, you know, when I get up in front of a crowd, I can't fake it. I can't phone it in. It's either you find me funny or you don't. When I, If you step into the MMA ring, there's no hiding. And he goes, when you stand up, and you pontificate on on issues. If it's full of shit, you will quickly know. You can't fake that when you're so much of the. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to bring all of our authenticity together. Well, you pay a price for being wrong. Yeah. You cannot get good at comedy. You cannot get good at fighting without without the the price has to be pain. The the price of adjustment is pain. It's the only way you... The, the, the pain from them not laughing when you put a sure, joke? Okay. Sure, sure. You, you it's, it's objective reality. You know, it's quiet. This joke ain't working, son. I don't care how esoteric you are. And, and singing is the same way. I mean, you know, there's a great... There's this haiku um, that somebody wrote that said, even with insects, some can sing and some cannot. You know, it's just the way it is, man. I'm sorry. I I was when I was in theater school, I I was I did some singing and the teacher, this God bless her. God bless this woman. She said, listen to me. You're very funny. My grandfather said the same thing to me later. But she said, you're very funny, very charming. You're not going to be the kind of singer that drops people's jaw. I just want you to know that. Focus on what you're good at. Thank you, man. Thank you. God bless that angel. Honest God. feedback. There you if go. If I tried to look her up, she probably wouldn't exist. She was probably an angel, you know, or something. But these are very important things to understand. Uh, what are what are some singers? Who are some singers that drop your job? Maybe I'll start. Can I start with some? Yeah. Sure. You ready? Uh, we're almost the same age, so you might know some of these guys. I'm a huge uh, Philly Sound fan. So the Stylistics, the Delphonics. Are you familiar with some of these groups? Do you know who those are? Billy Sound, I don't know. Philly the, Sound, never. Stylistics, you are everything, and everything is you. Do you These are the guys who have usually a lead singer who sings in falsetto, very, very high notes. Oh wow! Another one. Uh, do you know Minnie Ripperton? Do, does that? I don't. I'm, I'm hopelessly ignorant. Oh, okay. Uh, because I thought because it, it exactly speaks to the point that you were mentioning of someone drop. You know, they, they're stopped in their tracks because th- this singer M- Minnie Ripperton was the only one until. Mariah Carey came along wh- who, that can sing in what's called the whistle range. It's basically at a high pitch that's impossible for humans to carry. So please listen to Minnie Ripperton. There's a great song called Loving You. It's the first slow song that I danced to in grade five when we had moved from Mont- from Lebanon to Montreal. So it has a great personal connection to me. Please right. listen to it. But tell me who are some of your folks well, that you so, love. So, so what you're talking about is athletics a little bit. So when you look at Ariana Grande, she's astonishing. You will not find anybody on Broadway who doesn't bow at her feet because Ariana Grande has an absolutely astonishing range Range, and power 
where she can do anything she wants. And that, that's one thing. When you look at somebody with an instrument, gifted with an instrument, it's athletic. There's something incredibly athletic. But I think there's an X factor with singing. There's an X factor with, uh, so, so, so you look at Ariana Grande and then you listen to Billie Holiday. And Billie Holiday sang, for lack of a better term she, or word, she sang technically wrong in a way. She wasn't, she, she was, I mean, she was crying. She was doing something. Yet she was a giant. Yet if you listen to Strange Fruit with that, that trumpet that accompanies it, if you, don't, if you don't start crying, then there's something wrong with you. And so I've always been fascinated with people. And they said, what is it about you and your success, your ability to sing? And she said, hunger. Right. Really hungry. I grew up hungry. I had to sing to keep my grandmother in her apartment in Harlem in the middle of the winter because our rent was overdue and we were going to get kicked out on the street and she was going to die. So at 13 years old or 14, she went to every speakeasy and picked up $13 at the end that night, which was a lot of money back then. And she said people were crying into her beer, their beers. I, well, that, whatever that is, whatever that is to me is what um, I always think about when it comes to truly inspired um, our, our artistry that, we, that, that seems to last forever. I, there are some artistic expressions that, that are the cornerstones of our culture. What, what you just mentioned about hunger is the way that I would repackage that in the kind of academic talk. And it's something that I discuss in my forthcoming book on, you know, how to live a good life and so on. It's uh, the anti-fragility, right? So this, this is, so you know who, actually, I'm, after we finished chatting, I have a phone chat with the author of Anti-Fragility, who is a good friend of mine. He's a Lebanese guy. Nassim I, I've read his book. I've read uh, uh, Skin in the Game. Yeah. He's great. And a fellow, uh, a fellow Lebanese. A fellow uh, Lebanese, exactly. Yeah. And so anti-fragility, you're exactly spot on. I, I think that for all the horrors I went through through the Lebanese Civil War, and I wouldn't wish that on, on any child or any human, uh, you know, it has taught me to be resilient because whenever I face certain uh, trials and tribulations in my life and I think about what we got out of from Lebanon, I'm like, I can go like this because it was really truly part of my lived experience. And so that's why, incidentally, I'm so... Uh, annoyed by the faux victimology because some of us actually really went through some difficult periods where we really had to run fast so that our heads are not detached from the rest of our bodies so i'm i'm totally with you that i think there's an that uh, uh re facing stressors early in your life i mean stressors that are not fatal ultimately will make you stronger yeah yeah that, that's right i mean i i feel like saying to these people who are complaining about their about how words hurt I want to say, listen, you're a privileged Canadian. You're a privileged American, full stop. Pick up a history book, or better yet, just pick up a newspaper. Get a little perspective, because you're out of your mind, and you should, you should take a look at how dangerous your ideas are, by the way, and where they lead to. Right. That's all. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to all the woke stuff in a second, but uh, before we do that, how is it for you to you know, hold the, t the positions that you do and navigate within the ecosystem of, you know, Hollywood and the entertainment industry. Do you, do you think that you've been, you know, blackballed or do you have lesser chances of getting roles or, or were you able to kind of uh, overcome any of those obstacles? I don't know. I never really think about it. I'm in the 
business of satire. I'm in the business of, of uh, looking at the folly of, of myself and other human beings. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, my, my feeling, and you would probably appreciate this, is that so much of how we behave is a product of our evolutionary biology, how we have evolved. Now, you, you, can, you can pass all kinds of laws and, all, and, and you can pass all kinds of uh, cultural, new cultural parameters, but they just never can compete with biology. Yeah. They just can't compete with our, I mean, they can initially, they can suppress it. They can't change it. Well, this is E.O. Wilson. Sorry to interject, interrupt yeah. you. E.O. Wilson, the famous uh, evolutionary yeah. biologist from Harvard who recently passed away, uh, has a famous quote, which I often use, where he says that genes hold culture on a leash. So, so, so that, so there's an opportunity for different cultures to have some, what, some margins of, of, of pl plasticity, but ultimately you are bound by your biological blueprints. Yeah, he was so great. He also said about Marxism. He said Marxism, great idea. Wrong. Come on, that's like my favorite quote. I even have it in the parasitic mind. He's great. He's great. Yeah, it's, I, I love him. I, I, he's he's uh, he was a great thinker. And and that's a good example of, you know, when you say, well, holding the line. No, no, no. I'm just responsive to the evidence. Right. Um, I do the best I can to read the people I disagree with. I have read. I'm just an actor. But I have read the critical race theorists. Yes. I took my time. I read Ibram Kendi's terrible book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I read that other terrible book, Anti-Fragility, White, White Fragility. White Fragility, yeah. Uh, these are these are just they're Scott they're anemic in their scholarship and this is an actor with a BA in history talking I'm not a PhD I'm not an academic but I I can tell you that so one of the advantages of speaking to a lot of academics and you by the way are a big uh, exception to this and I've said this before but one of the things about speaking to um, most academics is I noticed that they had such a limited perspective on just the everyday life that most of us oh, lead. Totally. We are constructing a life. And it's very difficult to, most academics are able to sit back, be very narrowly focused in what they do, and and then from there deconstruct the world. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I listened to this, this professor talk about Jacques Derrida. <laughs> Can you think of anything more, a, a bigger waste of time than to study, to become an expert on Jacques Derrida, that, that, that balloon. Yeah. He's a balloon yeah, of air. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he had great hair. He, that's a guy who didn't make the soccer team. Yeah. You know, I, I can't stand it. So some of these academics, I'm just like, that's how you spend your life, bro? That's how you spend your life? You, you sit there and behind an expensive wall with a, in, your, in your purified echo chamber. It's a lot like this. MMA is the greatest thing because when, when I used to study a lot of martial arts, when you, when you study martial arts, when you go to a karate school, okay, and, and to be in our generation, your master, your karate master in that class was the fattest guy on the planet. He never fought. He never fought. He never had any fights under his belt, never got in a ring or a cage, and he certainly never was on the street. He was just he, the fifth-degree black belt or something or whatever it was. And, 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 and then MMA came along. Right. And they were like, hey, your kung fu is no good here. Right. You know, let's see what you do. Just come over here and let's see what you got. That's a good example of, of, of the difference between academics. And by the way, what I should say, it seems the reason I, I love how you think 
and how you write and how you talk in comparison to a lot of the others. And maybe that comes from the fact that you had to go through a war. I'll tell you what else it is, I think, uh, if I may. And, and thank you for the lovely compliments. Uh, and I complete, wholeheartedly agree with you regarding the idiocy of most. I mean, as a matter of fact, having been in academia for now close to 30 years, I can assure you that many comics are probably smarter than many academics because it takes a great amount of intelligence to get up in front of people who have paid to be entertained by your little quips, right? Yeah, strangers from everywhere. That takes a lot of intelligence, whereas many people could be studious enough to become very, very experts in a very narrow band. Now, again, I'm not denigrating academia. Of course, no. we, we need academics to, to, you know, to, to push the boundaries of human knowledge. But most academics are profoundly imbecilic once they step out of the, the, their lane. And I think one of the reasons why I, I've been able to, you know, to, to, to build a large platform, number one, because I am able to, I'm able to just as easily speak to Brian Callen, to a corrections officer, and to the fanciest of professors at Stanford, because I because I am multifaceted. Not I'm a chameleon. It's not because you're multifaceted. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why it is. Okay, go. Cool. It's because you really believe that you're not better or smarter. Exactly than right. Exactly. Because right. you 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 know how the world works. You're very good at at figuring out. You know, you've studied how hormones interact with our behavior, and yes, and evolutionary biology, and you have your degree in mathematics. Sure, you know a lot, but you know as well as I do that intelligence is incredibly compartmentalized. Yeah. And, you know, there's certain wisdom that comes from, obviously I'm not smarter than young people, I've just made all the mistakes you're about to make. <laughs> you know, so please, I have better pattern recognition. Right. You're headed toward a wall, just turn the wheel a little. Please listen to me, that's all. That's <laughs> very shiny, but it's got a hook in it. You, you don't have any children, do you? I had three children. Oh, you have three children, okay, I didn't know that. A 10-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a six-month-old. So, oh, congratulations. I'm an old dad. With the, if I may ask an intrusive yeah. question, with the lovely yeah. lady that I saw just before in the in the shot, that is correct. Oh well, congratulations! Wow, fifty five years old and a dad. Well, I I know someone who beat you. Uh, one one of the most famous evolutionary psychologists, who's a great friend of mine. His name you may even know him. He he actually wrote the preface to this book, The Consuming Instinct. David Buss. Okay. Who, I don't you don't know, oh, so you, I, David. I know David Sloan Wilson. Wilson David Sloan. You know what? David Sloan Wilson and I were very good friends, and we had a falling out. Do you want to know why we fell out? You ready? Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Because, uh, but first, let me finish about David Buss. Yeah. David Buss is almost seventy, and he just had a child. So you're 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 a you're a youngin compared to him. So so, so there you go. Uh, David Sloan Wilson, uh, academically phenomenal guy. Uh, he 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 instituted the first. Uh, EVOS program. EVOS stands for Evolutionary Studies. It's a university-wide degree that a student in any field can get a minor in evolutionary thinking, precisely because evolution, you know, impacts everything that involves biological beings. And I was actually trying to recreate his program, which he started at SUNY Binghamton, to be the first Canadian school to have it. So we were simpatico. He invited me multiple times to SUNY Binghamton. You know, everything was great. And then I did the horrifying thing of criticizing Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama on Twitter. Now, I didn't know. I was under the completely misguided view, number one, that I lived in a free country where I can exercise my right to express an opinion about the politician. And 
even as a Canadian that I had the capacity to make. But he started writing, you know, my dear friend Gatsad is one of the great evolutionary psychologists, but unfortunately he has lost his humanity. I hope he finds it. So apparently I went from being human like I was, I had the imprimatur of a human, but I lost that title when I had the audacity to criticize uh, no, noble prophet Barack Obama. So that shows you my next book, Parasitic Mind, what happens to profoundly intelligent people like David Sloan Wilson, who are unable to have theory of mind to say, here is a good friend of mine who may hold different political opinions. So, so I, I use David as an example. David, I've interviewed David twice. He's a lovely man. Yes. An intelligent man. He's, 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 he, his contributions, I've read his books and they're, they're. He's they're, unbelievable. Yeah. But David is an example. He's, a, he's the classic example of highly intelligent and the most sheltered, narrow. I hope he hears this because I'm not being insulting. Yes. I'm just telling We got in an argument because David Stone Wilson uses hunter-gatherer tribes, okay, hunter-gathering tribes and their, and, and their um, structures and how they live to ascend. And I'm being, I don't want to paraphrase the man because he's got a hell of a brain and he's very nuanced in his thinking. But David basically believes we should be taxing people 80%. He, yeah. is, he is as close to a communist, certainly yeah. a heavy socialist as it gets. The problem with David is David has never lived in the marketplace. Yeah. David has no idea, and I mean the first idea, of how to raise money for a business, how to run a business. He didn't know what an agent was. Right. You can hear it on my podcast. Well, yeah, I yeah. recorded it. But they wanted me to host an evolutionary biology sort of like semi- um, a conference, and they wanted a comedian. And what I said, David, if you guys are trying to raise 100 grand, I can do that very easily. You just go out to an Asian. And David said, wait, Brian, this is fascinating. You tell me there are people you can go out to. Oh, my God. He had no idea. David doesn't have a clue about how the marketplace works because David has never had to make the trains run on time. David's never had to come up with a product that people want. He's never had to compete. David sits behind very expensive walls and and is a, a wonderful academic. But stay in your lane. David should not be talking about economics and tax policy. He is as ignorant to that as I am in what he does. And that's the problem when, when, when an academic who is that narrow, who lives at the bottom of a well and only sees that, that much, his own sliver of the sky, you know, when he starts talking about the part of the sky he can't see, we are in trouble. And that's my biggest problem with the people who are controlling the narrative in this country. Don't pay a price for being wrong. And they, they sit around and they're not living the kinds of lives that all of us are, which is I have to compete. If I don't put butts in the seat as a comic, I don't make money. Yeah. And that requires a consideration of about 15 or 20 things that he's never even thought about. Yet he's telling me about tax policy. But see, at least, I mean, of, of both of the weaknesses that we just described, uh, yours, in my mind, is, is less egregious than the, the interaction I had with him, because in your in, in your right. example, so 100%. right, he, he's just wrong or he's misinformed or he's that's, ignorant. That's, that's an outrageous statement. And, and, and it gives you an example of how the left, how people like David Stone Wisman, who, who, who is a lovely man and very intelligent. But it really gives you an idea of who they would really be in power if someone disagreed with their vision exactly. of the utopian world they're trying to create. And you know why? Because they they David 
and he's forgiven because he's so smart, actually believes yeah. he's smarter than everybody he's talking to and writing for panoramically. Well, you know, I'm, I'm currently reading, uh, I'm almost done with it, uh, Thomas Sowell's Vision of the Anointed from 1995. And, and I was so excited as I started reading it because I said, every word in there is exactly spot on, like not a syllable, not a comma, not a period. And, and David, and I'm going to say someone else, people are going to say, oh, you're obsessed with Sam Harris. I'm not, but Sam Harris, unfortunately, is also a member of the Vision of the Anointed Club because Sam and I, you may or may not know that, you know who Sam Harris is? Very well, yeah. Yeah, so Sam and I were, you know, good friends. I've been on his show. We've been to dinner together. We've communicated many times. I kind of sat quietly while he went insane on Trump for four years because I kind of have a code of conduct. Maybe it's the Gad code of conduct. Maybe it's the Middle Eastern code of conduct. I don't like to go. F I mean, I go after people when they piss me off hard. But if I know you well, then I won't do that because of the code. So for four years, I sat quietly while Sam Harris linked every possible ill to Donald Trump. I mean, there's going to be a nuclear holocaust. We're going to have the barter system. The economy is going to crash. He's going to outlaw sex. He's going to eat your children. And after about four years, as he was you know, stepping down from being president, I did a couple of sort of mocking kind of classic gad satirical little pieces where I was clearly mocking Sam's hysteria, right? I'm hiding under the table and so on and so forth. Well, rather than kind of playing along and saying, oh, he, you know, here's, I guess I deserve this. You know, gad is making fun of me. He unfollows me and so on. Now, I don't give a shit whether you unfollow me or not, but it's the signal of what that conveys, right? That you weren't sufficiently anti-fragile. Say, hey, you know what, Gad? Why don't you come back on my show? Or why don't I come on your show and let's hash out whether I was right to be so anti-Trump or whether maybe you had some good points as to why we shouldn't be so hysterical against Trump, but he didn't. Therefore, he's part of the Castrati Club. Well, you know, I've listened to a lot of Sam Harris. I've listened to his podcast. I've read his books. Um, I think I've given Sam a really fair shake, and I'm a fan. I, I like him. Uh, I think he's an important voice. What, the one thing I would say, and I, 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 I hate talking. I haven't met Sam, so I don't want to talk behind his back, but I, I, would, I would at least ask him this question, uh, and it's a question. Sam has a very strong idea of how he feels about things like free will yeah. uh, and, and, and how probably a society should be structured and, and his notion of... Uh, how antiquated and detrimental and barbaric uh, certain religions are, like the Old Testament, like the Quran, and all these things. I understand. He's got his, he's, he's pretty, he goes hard in the paint with that stuff. But I do get the sense, even though he debates and has people on he disagrees with, I, I, I do have and get the sense that he hasn't changed his mind once. Exactly. And, and, and I mean, I've listened to everything. I've really listened to him. I've, and and I, I would say the only indictment is, Sam, I haven't heard you get swayed once. I, I, and I, maybe I'm being unfair. Well, in, in fairness to him, he did say, he did put out a tweet. And I only know this because somebody tagged me to say, hey, look, he's, uh, uh, he had written about... Uh, now, finally, the adults are in the room when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, you know, won the, pre the presidency and vice presidency. And then later he put out a tweet and saying, I am slowly eating my words one syllable at a time, meaning that he was admitting that, that he was wrong. So at least yeah, he's got I, I like I like him a lot. I mean, I, I don't know him, but I, I, I really enjoy him and I, I've gotten a lot out of him, and especially his 
spirituality without religion. And his, he's got this wonderful app called Waking Up. Yeah. He's such a complicated, special guy. But I, I would ask him, I, I mean, I, I wonder if he has ever done a, uh, um, what is the word, an accounting of, of how many times he has allowed himself to at least change his perspective a right. little bit. Yes, yes. He's very steadfast in his, and he's worked hard for it. He's worked yeah. hard for his point of view. He's worked hard for his philosophy. But I do think, I, I wonder if he would be well better served being a little more malleable. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he asked me for specific examples, which I could probably give him. But um, that that seems to be, so, so I'll give you an example of, of what I think he can tend to, the trap he might fall into as smart as he is. And I heard, this was Hitchens and this was also uh, Dawkins. They seem to have a very literal idea of what uh, religion is to people, right? I know that the Old Testament and the Israelites were not a nice group. Yeah. And I know that the God of the Old Testament was a very unforgiving and jealous and vengeful God, yes. a homophobe and a misogynist. I get it all. I get it all. But, um, and you could, you could find passages in the Quran, you could find passages in the Old Testament, you could find passages in the New Testament that are contradictory, sure. and that are, that are uh, old-fashioned, stuff like that. But I wish that they had given people who find meaning in religion, yes. meaning in mythology, a little more credit. They know that too, right? But they get a lot out of the overall motifs, the overall ideas, the the guidance that is um, something akin to self restriction and the value therein. Yeah, you'll pay a price if you don't. And I think the great rebuttal to, to the new atheist has been uh, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I was just going to mention him actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that's why I appreciate him so much. Um, I've read word for word the Old Testament and the Quran. Yeah. Yes, I understand. Nice. I've read it word for word. I haven't read it. I haven't skimmed it. I've read it word for word. So I understand. I'm right with you that it's not, yeah. we wouldn't want to hang out with the Israelites. Yeah. What I find fascinating about the Old Testament is that these, the, the, the leaders, the, the founders of the house of Israel, you know, Israel, by the way, means to wrestle with God. You know, it comes from Jacob, but, but, but they are so flawed. And yet they were left in there. Yeah. The first, the first people on earth were Cain and Abel who killed. I mean, Abel. I mean, Cain killed Abel because he was jealous. You know, and they left it in there. So there's a lot to be gleaned. There's a great deal of value, and I wish, I, I wish Sam gave believers a little more credit. Right. And that also, by the way, goes back to what I'm saying: is when you are not mixing with everyday people. And to Sam's credit, Sam said, I don't have anybody in my phone book who smokes, works. Yes. Well, God, I, bless Sam. God bless Sam for saying that because that is a major liability. So I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't like talking about Sam when he can't be here to rebut, but, but I do think that, um, I do think that he's aware of that, but I wish I, yeah. That's so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, so because we mentioned Sam and you mentioned Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and so on, I'm going to, I'm going to take it now to some personality traits that I either appreciate or not in, in people. And then we can use these as exemplars. So someone like Christopher Hitchens, whom I've regrettably never had the pleasure of, of knowing, uh, as you know, I often use the, the term 
activate your inner honey badger, right? Because the honey badger is this most ferocious animal on earth, right? So Christopher Hitchens, for better or worse, was the ultimate honey badger, right? I mean, he wore his emotions on his sleeve. You knew where you stood with him. He didn't equivocate his positions for careerist interests. He didn't equivocate his positions because it wasn't consistent with his brand image. Whereas I remember, for example, and again, this is not to bash Sam. He's, he's a lovely guy. And, I, and if he watches this, please don't think that we're trying to bash you because he, you, you're, I'm only using him as an exemplar of something. I remember yeah. one time we were chatting, Sam and I, and, and, he, and I, he said, well, do you think I should invite, uh, I don't know, uh, I think it was uh, Robert Spencer, who's a big anti-Islam critic. I, I think that's who it was. I said, yes, you should. You know, he's a, he's a great guy. And we had a great conversation on my show. And he said something like, but, you know, I don't think that it would be consistent with my brand or with my... See, that totally turned me off. Because if you know anything about me, Brian, and I, and I think you do, you watch my stuff, I am authentic to a fault, right? So sometimes my wife will say, why can't you keep your, your fat mouth shut just so that we can find a way to get to Southern California? Why do you always have to speak? What's... Because... Because I'm driven by authenticity. Because to me, if I equivocate in any way, when I go to bed at night, as I've explained this on a million occasions, when I go to bed at night, the only thing that cures my insomnia is to know that I was fully authentic on any given day. If not, yes, it's a very high exacting standard, but then I feel like a fraud. But if I've always said exactly how I feel, right or wrong, then at least I was always truthful and authentic. Yeah. The problem with guys like Sam and others who are or politicians is that they're checking where the wind is going. No, I have deontological first principles. I know how to defend them. Come at me and let's see who wins. Well, I, to, to defend Sam a little bit, I think Sam, hey, I think Sam's really courageous in a lot of ways. Like Sam, Sam said some stuff and he is driven. I think I think Sam's very intellectually honest. I really do. I just think Sam has gotten so much heat. Yeah. From his like the Ben Affleck interview. Yes. Sam is a sensitive guy. Yes. I don't know him, but I, I know people that know him. Like Joe Rogan like talks about how funny Sam is. He's got a great sense of humor. Yes. He it, but he's hilarious. And he's overall just, you know, a great guy in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, and so I think that with Sam, I think he took the fight on. I think he took it on and he took it on full bore and got so much Very true. You're you're spot on. And by the way, I'm talking about death threats. I'm oh. talking about real death threats, real anti-Semitic kind of, you know, the, he, he dealt with a lot of the actual, actually dangerous situations. Oh, yeah. I, I believe that. And so I think what happens with a guy like Sam is after a while he goes, dude, let me just stick to meditation. Like now he just wants to talk about <laughs> fucking my waking up podcast because it's not, he's got children. Yeah. He's got a wife. He's trying to live his life. And all he's trying to do is say, hey, I don't I see some major inconsistency here, but it's dangerous out there. Yeah. It's dangerous. And if you're a guy like Sam Harris, who speaks his mind, when, when you get that much hate, I think that it, it actually just becomes so exhausting that you get so disheartened. And I, that's what I got from. Him. Yeah, so, no, I, I have to agree with that. I, I completely. So so point taken. And, and if Sam ever watches this uh we love you, man. We have nothing but respect for you. We may disagree on Trump. Maybe we can patch it up one day, but you're a good guy. Let's move on to something well, else. Well, he's, he's yeah. a sensitive guy, so yeah, we he, all are. He is. Let's, let's talk about, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I'm only mentioning this because, uh, you know, obviously he's the number one podcaster in the world. Joe Rogan, phenomenal yeah. guy and authentic, right? Can we, can we agree that one of his biggest reasons for his success is he is exactly adhering to my 
desperate need to always be authentic. Joe is authentic to a fault. True. Joe and I, I just had dinner with him on Thursday in Austin and Joe and I have always called it the pesky truth. Like no matter what, it, you got to get to the truth. Like, like you can bullshit your way into whatever, but since I've known him, I've known him for 28 years and we've been that close and we always called it the pesky truth. You can bullshit yourself all you want. But the one thing I promise you about him is if you're friends with him, that guy will call you. He'll be like, you don't like that girl break up with her right now. No, I do. He's like, listen, he spent, he spent 45 minutes a few years ago fat shaming me on his show. Now, I'm not going, this was, I was about 86 pounds heavier. Oh, now, I remember that. I saw that. Yeah. I saw it. Okay. Uh, now, I, now, I'm not going to give him all the credit for having lost weight, but let me tell you something. When Joe Rogan and his 20 million fans are fat shaming you, you better take stock of your life, man. I remember it, bro. <laughs> I remember that so well. I was like, oh, poor God. Fuck, come on, Joe. But you know what? Did you a favor. You look exactly. great. Exactly. So, Thank you know, that, that's, that's what he's about. And, and I think um, I've always appreciated that about him. He is as well. So I'll give you another example. When I was uh, when when I started my podcast and we started getting big and we started getting all these sponsors, he said that, that these sponsors came to me us and they were offering a lot of money, but I didn't believe in the product and I just can't do it. I just was like, I, I, it was a big company, a big fast food company. I was like, man, I don't eat that shit, so I can't tell my followers to. And Joe said, listen to me very carefully. It's very important, very important that you always believe in the product. The minute you lie to your audience, the minute you pull a fast one, you're fucked and you should be. And of course I knew that, but that that's him. Yeah. He's always been, he's always been so honest. And you know, I remember, um, I remember when he went through all this crap when they were trying to pin racism on him and stuff. I can tell you, he came from Boston and Newark, New Jersey. And the one thing I noticed about him when we were in our early twenties, or mid-20s, was that he never once said anything racist. He never used a racist the term. He never was anything like that. And, I, and he was like very woke, uh, you know, as, as, as he was very liberal. Like, and I thought, I, I know where you come from. I know the Italian, the Irish. I know those areas very well. And they're not terribly forgiving of uh, diversity. Yeah. Or, 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 or even if they are, there's still a language that, that surrounds that, at least back when we were young. And he never, ever used it. And I said one day, I said, why? I've never heard you utter a racist comment or even a joke. And he said, because it's because I've been around very dumb white people, too, dude. Yeah. It's culture. Yeah. It has nothing to do with race. And he quoted, I think, Jack Johnson. The guy was calling Jack Johnson. He's a credit to his race the human race. And Joe was making a joke about that in 1995. He said, race, there's no race, there's the human race. People would clap. That was his joke. Yeah. And, and he really believes that. Again, another guy, you know why he's so successful? Because deep down in his heart, he really understands and knows he's not better than the people yeah. he's talking yeah. to. You know, he once told me, arguably the nicest thing he, he ever told me uh, I've been on a show maybe, I mean, not nearly as many times as you have, but of sort of the non-comedians, I'm probably one of the most common guests, maybe eight times. And the nicest thing he ever told me as a compliment, and, you know, he's been always so lovely with me, is he said, 
you know, he introduced me as the godfather and he goes, you know what I love so much about you as a professor? You don't take yourself so seriously. You're so down to earth. And I thought, I'm so glad they said, because oftentimes people who don't know me think that I'm actually arrogant, but then they don't get it. So for example, here's a joke that I always do. You might've seen it on Twitter. I take a selfie of myself, let's say on some beach in Newport beach. And I go sublime, stupendous, sexy, succulent, and the beach is also nice. Now, I mean, what, which moron doesn't get that I'm being flippant? I'm joking. How do you not love you? That's great. Right. I'm, I'm joking. Sometimes I, I'm engaged in self aggrandizing, full self-aggrandizing. Sometimes I'm self-denigrating. It's part of my shtick, my bombastic stuff. Some people think that that's, I'm truly arrogant. I think that I am, you know, a narcissist. I, I'm, I'm, I'm falling in love with myself in the mirror. But the reality is I'm the exact opposite, right? And so to have someone like Joe on such a big platform, that was probably a bigger compliment to me than if he said, you're so brilliant and intelligent and all that, because I'm truly authentic to a fault. And I love that about him and about you. Well, thank you. I mean, I don't know how else you're supposed to navigate the world. For God's sake, good luck taking, you know, good luck taking yourself seriously. You know, I, I, and the other thing is I'm constantly reminded of what a moron I am. So <laughs> I, I, I would always preach being a libertarian and, you know, I, and I've got all my uh, Milton Friedman. And another thing about F.A. Hayek and all that shit. And, uh, and, and I remember I read Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk. Mm. And he, in that book, talks about all the things that the U.S. government does, the Department of Energy, the Department of Agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized at 54, whatever it was, I read the book, I don't know the first fucking thing about how government works. I don't have a clue. And more importantly, I don't know anything about the kinds of benefits that I enjoy because of the intelligent people in the Department of Energy, Department of Agriculture, Department of whatever it might be, and, and how important they are to the infrastructure of our country. And so when I say I don't like big government, which I don't, maybe a better way to say it is I don't like government to be too involved in my personal choices and my, my personal life. And so as you immerse yourself in the best that's been thought and said, as you read people who might, you know, as you read smart people, the point is to be able to change your mind sometimes yeah. and to admit that you are a bit of a moron when it comes to all this, all these opinions you held over here. That oh, was very humbling. Yeah, so two, two, two stories. Uh, number one, regarding libertarianism, I was walking with my then nine-year-old, he's now 10, son. We were cross... Nine-year-old, you said? I have a 10-year-old. 10 10-year-old, 10 okay, right. Uh, and... Uh, we were crossing the street in our neighborhood. We live in a residential neighborhood, but that has like kind of a little mini downtown where we kind of always hang out there, a couple of cafes and so on. And as we were crossing the street, there was kind of a cop kind of lying in wait to stop people and give them tickets if they cross the street when it's not, you know, if they're jaywalking. But it's a very residential street. It's a one-way street. So I have the cognitive capacity to look, see that there are no cars coming, and to make the personal agency decision of crossing, even though the government hasn't told me on their sign that it's time to cross. So, But, of course, I had to do it because I saw her there, and she would have probably given me a ticket. So as we were walking, I said, that's the importance of libertarianism. When the government is saying that if at the time I was 56, I'm 57 now, when a 56-year-old man doesn't have the capacity to know when to cross the street or not with his son and he needs a 
one-year-old female cop who's younger than some of the socks that I still wear to tell me that it's okay to cross or not, that's when the government has gone too far. What do you say? Of course, of course, of course. The, 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 the larger problem with, with government, I think, is that it continues to grow. Yeah. It, it's, its job is to continue to grow. And I think there's no accountability. And those are the two, the, the two of the biggest problems. You know, government should always be treated as a necessary evil. It is necessary, but but you know, let's let's always treat it. I think George Washington said that. Yeah. Um, you know, but but again, you know, I, I think the the largest thing to worry about, the central question in political philosophy is who governs the governor? Right. Who governs the governor? And you know, but we also have to keep in mind, and I think the founding fathers did, certainly James Madison was fucking amazing about this. You read the Federalist Papers, you know, it is a very human thing. It is the maybe one of the central drives. You know, so you talk about the will to power for human Move beings, this way a bit. You're out of the you're out of sorry. focus. Yeah. For, for people for people to want to have power over other people. Yeah. And and those motives can be good. A lot of times it's like, look, guys, I, I just I'm telling you I know what's best for all of us. And yeah. we all do it. I yeah. do it all the time. Sure. We all do it. And I think that you know, that's probably where the idea of checks and balances come in. That's where the founding fathers said. Yeah. Power cannot reside on, in any one group's hands. The biggest, the biggest threat to our democracy is faction and factions getting stronger than other factions and annexing those factions yeah. and, and rule, rule by man, not rule by law. What, so. what, what is it that the second thing that I was going to ask you, uh, you're obviously very intellectually engaged. You're, you're a well-read person. Is it something that you cultivated later in your life or is this something that you can go back to when you were 10 years old, you were devouring books? Is this part of the, the, the personhood of Brian Callen or did you have to foster this? I grew up all over the world. I grew up in the developing world. So I was born in the Philippines. I then moved to uh, India. And then I moved to uh, Lebanon. Yeah. And How long did you spend in Lebanon? Five years altogether. I, I saw the Civil War. So <laughs> Lebanon, then, then Pakistan, then Lebanon again. We got stuck in the war. My father couldn't get back in. We were sleeping in the garage of the Holiday Inn. Uh, I heard all wow. the fire. I saw, I saw. What year? bomb a gas station i saw them shoot missiles as a kid you're so you know terrified oh it's called my world it's what it's called tuesday in my childhood oh i know so so then i then then uh having gone from there we got evacuated to greece and then saudi arabia now while i was in all those countries in the 70s and the 80s i also went to communist china i went to communist russia i went to china in 1984 i went to russia in 1985 when it was still with with your dad, with your with dad, my, with okay. my yes, with my dad and my mother. Thank my God bless my father and mother. They they were so uh, aware of how of the consequences of bad ideas. When bad ideas win the day, and I was I was exposed to this as a child. I saw real poverty in Yemen. I saw real poverty in Pakistan. I saw I, I remember it very well. When you see somebody with leprosy in Syria. When you see somebody with leprosy on their face in Syria, in a, in a bazaar, and, and somebody with elephantiasis, and you see that as a child and nobody puts that in perspective, and somehow you've never gone to bed hungry, and somehow you come from America and you're protected, and somehow you see a lot of these children begging for food in Africa behind the glass of an air-conditioned car, you say to yourself, why am I so lucky? I didn't do a damn thing to deserve to be on this side of the glass. Right. Those kids are my age and they're desperate. 
And when you see that, nobody puts that in perspective. It's very, very traumatic. So for me, I have seen and I have felt and I have smelled and I have been shamed by the accumulation of bad ideas. I come from the side that won history, the side of great ideas. I am a beneficiary, but I did nothing to deserve it. Right. And so what happens is I think guilt, compassion, empathy, and confusion make for a mix and, and you start looking for answers. See, so I want- Yeah, and ideas have consequences. I, I, so I wanna- I wonder if the fact that you were able to sample from the buffet of possible societies is precisely what, not in whole, but in part, allowed you to then recognize the beauty of the United States, notwithstanding some of its stains, of course, no no society is perfect, no human is perfect. Because I've often argued that some of the reason why some of the staunchest defenders of Western values are immigrants like myself, like Ayan Hersey Ali, is because we know what's out there. We know that this is not the default value. Human society is paved by dictators and, and autocrats. So we're a little bleep, an anomaly in the history of possible buffet of societies. So do you think that that's in part why you fight against woke ideas and so on? Because you've seen all of the stupid ideas that are out there? Of course. Yeah. Of course. It's it's part of my DNA. Yeah, I did a USO tour in Af- Afghanistan in 2007. Go go drive through Kabul, go yeah. to Kandahar, and watch how those people live. And you tell me, you tell me how how uh, what what the Soviets are really about when they went into that country and destabilized it. You know, history is and uh, almost uh, the the Israeli writer said something I'll never forget. He said, "The way you beat a bad idea is with a better idea." Yeah. And uh, the United States, the founding fathers, I know they owned slaves. I know they had their flaws. But let me tell you, those, those men in their 30s, along with Benjamin Franklin, who was a lot older, solved the political problem. They did what Socrates and Plato, they did what Plato and Aristotle couldn't do. Uh, they somehow figured it out. Um, we, we owe a debt of gratitude to England, probably, and, but, but, and to the philosophers that came out of Scotland and England, for yeah. sure. But for the most part, those men who read the Greeks, who read the Bible, who read everything, who are steeped in, in, in their tradition, they, they, they figured out a way to solve the political problem. They did. Nobody argues that the Constitution needs to be changed. Sometimes, you know, little treats sure. from amendments. But for the most part... That, that, is, that is the greatest idea of philosophy, at least political philosophy, and there's no one even close. And so I think that when I see that under threat being criticized unfairly by people who don't have a clue, who'd, who've never been outside this country, who aren't old enough to remember what leprosy looks like, what a civil war looks like, who don't have friends you grew up with who, who paid lost their whole family. I went back to Lebanon after the war. I went back there and I, I didn't recognize anything from my childhood. Wow. I went back to the stables, the the the, the, the who owned owned the stable where I used to go all the time. It wasn't there anymore, man. Nothing was there anymore. And so Do you speak you know, Arabic? Shwaye, okay. But but you know when you see that man, it's uh it makes me it makes me nuts. Right. And so, uh, I don't know. That's 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 why I take it so personally. Do you uh, do you ever foresee uh, 
taking a hiatus from uh, your entertainment world and going into politics? Is this something that might interest you or not really? You know, the problem with politics until they get campaign finance reform figured out is you're spending so much of your time uh, fundraising yeah. <laughs> for the next thing. It becomes very hard to be autonomous. It becomes yeah. very hard to speak your mind. You know, we, you got to toe the party line. I'm not. In, I couldn't do it. I'm probably a lot like you. Yeah. I, well, well, I've been I've been approached by many, you know, pretty high powered people in, in the Canadian ecosystem to say, hey, why don't you run for this and that? And I said I would be the suckiest politician in the history of the world because within the first 15 seconds, I'm going to offend this constituency and this one because I'm going to speak. My, and they say, oh no, but that's what we need. We need honesty. I'm like, no. It's I live in the real world. I would suck. You don't want me as a politician. Yeah, I always I have a joke where I say the the real reason I'd be a shitty politician is I'd probably say I don't know sometimes maybe it depends, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be changing my mind and I you know I'm 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 influential and and now yeah no I I don't think I could do it. Okay, I, I'm not interested in it. I suppose. Got it. okay. A couple of more questions and then I'll you, you've been very kind with your time. Uh, number one, if you could if if you if it hadn't panned out for you in the entertainment industry. What else would Brian Callen be doing right now? Would he be a chef? Would he be a, uh, a neurosurgeon? Would he be a professor like yours truly? What would he be doing? I might have been a teacher. Oh, some, like like an, at, at the high school level, you mean? I taught Taekwondo for a while. I love that. I, I like teaching. Um, but it wasn't about the Taekwondo. I think I, think I like with the, the guiding young people. Okay. But I don't know if I would have been effective. You know, the, you, know you get better as you live a life. But um, now I think I could teach. Um, I probably would have been, I would have tried to be a writer. Okay. I would have tried to write story. And, and So uh, as a novelist, not nonfiction, you mean? No. I think probably screenplays, maybe okay. novel, but I don't think I would have been good at it. But you, don't, you, don't, you don't think that this is something that you could take up now? You, you don't, or you don't think you have the talent for it? Or what? What's... You know, um, I just shot my special, and I'm, I'm, it's going to drop September 3rd. It's called Man Tears. And I think... Um, I, I surprised myself with how I was able to weave a theme. The, the, my last special is called Complicated Apes. It's on Amazon for anybody who wants to watch it. But I was proud of it. I'm not proud of much I've done, but I was proud of it because I was able to carry a theme. You know, a theme. So, so a theme in a book, when, a, when an author writes, if it's a good book, theme is really the author's argument for how one should behave in the world. I mean, that's really the best way I can put it. It's always an argument. Parasitic mind is that way. You, you, it's an argument yeah. that you're making. And so I think I did that. And I think I'm getting closer to, to being able to write thematically. I think I'm getting closer to being able to. But you've got to believe you have something to say. I mean, the other thing is that I don't want to be at this point. Sometimes I think that I'm just I have a good memory and I'm, I'm good at parroting what I have heard. But being original, I think I do. I think I honestly, I, I think I'm way more original as a comic. Right. But, you know, being an original thinker, that's not easy, man. And unless I can do that, I don't know if I'm interested. Right, right. I'll leave it up to guys like you. Oh, well, aren't you sweet? Uh, okay, question two. Yeah. Who, yeah. who, uh, and, then, uh, and then one last ending question, and then we'll wrap it up. Question two, of all the people that you could meet, uh, heroes, they could be in sports, they could be in, in academia, they could be in entertainment, who would they be? Before you answer, I'm going to answer it. I actually mentioned it on the most recent appearance on Joe Rogan. We were talking about someone that I would want to invite on my show who's in the entertainment world. And I mentioned two people. I said uh, Clint Eastwood because I grew up in Lebanon watching this quiet, dignified superhero from the Spaghetti Westerns. 
And I said, I, I want to be that guy as a, as a little boy. So Clint Eastwood has this kind of unique place in my mind and heart. The second guy was Burt Bacharach. Do you know who Burt Bacharach is? Yes. These are such strange. I know. I, I'm, 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 God, God, you, this, you're so intellectually robust. You've got a command of history. Burt Bacharach. Let me tell you why. You know what? He, he, he just had a unique, unique ability to orchestrate. I, I love creative people. I've listened to him in interviews. You know, his just his creative impulse attracts me. So anyway, so I was mentioning this, and I'll, I'll cede the floor to you in a second for you to answer it. So I had mentioned this on the Joe Rogan show. And if this guy is now listening, he should know that I'm pissed off with him and it wasn't cool what he did. I'm going to mention who he is. So Burt Bacharach's son what, sees me on Joe Rogan, writes to me a few weeks later, says, oh, hey, Dr. Saad, I saw your thing. I would love to have my father come on your show. It was so lovely to hear it. So let's see if we can work it out. So I write back excitedly, you know, very authentically with complete humility. Oh, I'd love to have him on. He doesn't answer. Then I go to California where I'm spending five weeks with my family. I say, hey, I'm in Newport Beach. Let's make this happen. He doesn't answer. Not fucking cool, right? I despise this. I don't give a shit what's happening in your life. You reached out to me and asked for him to come. So answer me. What? So anyways, that's all I'm going to say about this. Who are your favorite heroes that you'd love to meet? <laughs> I love that. Uh, I mean, look, probably Da Vinci. Oh. Yeah. But the reason I want to meet Da Vinci is because he had such a, he was such a, what's the word, iconoclast, or he was just such a... He's a polymath. He's a polymath. He's a polymath. That's the word. He was a polymath. And the reason I'd like to meet Da Vinci is I'd like to give him the benefit of, of, of the scientific discoveries and some of the truths that we now have arrived at, giving him the instrumentation he didn't have back then to see what he'd do with that. Before you go on, before you give me anybody else, because I'm so excited what you just said. So I play this game. I've even written an article in Psychology Today about it, where I said, if you, ha- if you could meet 10 historical figures throughout history to invite them to dinner, who would they be? Da Vinci is on that list, and I put him as number one on that list. So yeah. I am totally with you. Go on. Yeah, you have to. So Da Vinci, probably Einstein, because he was so playful and could explain big concepts, um, big concepts uh, for a moron like me. But, but not before, not before, if Socrates was real, and he may not have been. It may have been, uh, he may have been a character Plato created. That's what, what I think. I think create, Plato created him. So if Socrates existed, he was essentially a Christ figure. I wouldn't mind meeting him, right. of course, to see if he's real. And if not, I'd love to meet Plato. Right. Just, just for the record, before you go on, I when I answered Clint Eastwood and Burt Bacharach, I meant living entertainment people. You're answering historical figures. Uh, Burt Bacharach and Clint Eastwood wouldn't be on that list. So just to be clear. To, okay, to set, perfect. That's what I was saying. I was like, I don't give a shit about entertainment No, people. no. I was specifically talking about living entertainers that I could actually stomach having a conversation with on my show. <laughs> Are we clear? Well... Yeah, yeah. And then now, now, now we're talking okay. uh, differently. I mean, there are there are great writers. They they would all be writers. Yeah. They'd all be great novelists. Okay. You know, uh, I like Jonathan Franzendor. Just there are some people that are really interesting. Um, uh, you know, uh, but th- that might be sometimes the way people can. Oh, you know who I'd love to talk to? Yeah, God, cool. Cormac McCarthy. If you've ever read Blood Meridian, no, I don't know Cormac who that is. McCarthy, yeah, 
Cormac McCarthy is at the top of the American canon when it comes to novelists, in okay. my opinion. His his book, his book, uh, Blood Meridian. Well, well, when the New York Times mattered, uh, they, they, they I think it was probably when it came out in 1985. They said this is one of the greatest feats of language, in one of the great greatest accomplishments, I think, in 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 the English language. It was such an it's such an astonishing book, and and I would recommend that people listen to it read by a guy named Richard Poe, who's an actor. Don't read it. Listen to it. Take your time with it. It's about scalp hunters in the early 1800s as the West was being settled. You want to talk about brutality? Wow! But beauty, and it's like if you've ever read Lolita by Nabokov, right. they're both geniuses with the they're they're like modern day Shakespeare. With their with their command of the is he still is he forgive the Cormac McCarthy so he wrote No Country for Old Men oh yeah about all the all the wild horses it's they they turn a lot of his books into movies but he never gives interviews he gave one interview once to Oprah a long time ago. I was just gonna say hey let's bring him on my show I, apparently not no. okay but he, again he'll say to you you know read my book that's who I am oh right uh, not not what I can say so I I think that it might be a boring conversation oh, you, okay. you can't capture genius like that it's a little bit like you know you you it's like um <laughs> i love i can't remember who the philosopher was he said i've never talked to god but i have i have heard him clearing his throat on occasion <laughs> you know if you if you look too hard you know stay it's in the corner of your eye sometimes right. you can only see things in your periphery uh yeah but but as far as historical figures i would love to speak to tolstoy and I'd love to speak to Dostoevsky. I want to hear Dostoevsky. I want to hear him talk about Christianity. I want to hear him talk about the fact that he thought his seizures were a gift from God. Right. I, I want to hear Tolstoy talk about the fact that he he was obsessed with the notion of self-perfection and, and, and achieved self-perfection, achieved all the status, power, and recognition anybody could ever uh, uh, want, hope for and became... One of the greatest, if not the greatest writer of all time. And and at 50, what did he want to do? Kill himself. Yeah. At 50, he wanted to hang himself or shoot himself. I want to talk to that guy to give me some perspective. Wow, that's 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 deep stuff. Last question, and then we open it up for any promotional things you want to say. Uh, I often end with the following question, and I'll set it up. So one of my former uh, psychology professors in my PhD program is a guy by the name of Tom Gilovich, who is a pioneer in studying the psychology of regret, and specifically the idea that if, if you ask people, you know, do you regret, looking back in your life, do you regret anything? Well, the taxonomy of regret can be broken up into uh, regrets due to action. You know, I regret that I cheated on my wife and now my marriage fell apart versus regret due to inaction. I, I, re I regret that I never pursued a career in medicine and instead went into accounting because my dad told me that that's the right thing to do. And it turns out that over the long haul, most people regret inactions much more than actions. And so with that setup, are you willing to share one or two or three of your biggest regrets so far in your life? So I've always said that at least for a man, I can't speak for a woman, a man, his biggest fear is that he's a coward. His, his biggest aspiration is that he's a hero. And the delineation there is action. Following that inner voice, following that truth, knowing, you know what you're supposed to do. You know, the rest is denial. It takes five minutes to fall in love, the rest is denial. You know what to do. Right. You know all the answers. Everything else is procrastination and <laughs> 
I'm sorry to say that, everybody, but that's the truth. Oh, I don't know what to do with my life. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. It might be too big to look at. But your best self is clearing his throat in the other room, which might be something close to God. And uh, it's really scary to kind of face that. So my biggest fear was that word. My biggest fear was regret. I had seen a movie when I was a young man called The Pope of Greenwich Village. Oh, I love that movie. Yep. And he has to he has to leave. The guy has to leave. He has to leave and get away because the mafia is going to kill him. And she says to him, he's getting on the train and he's a fat, kind of sad guy who's failed at his life. And she says, how could you let this happen to you? And he looks at her and says, I, I let my whole life happen to me. Right. And the doors close. And I went, I, I started crying in the movie. I went, oh, that's never going to be me, man. That's never going to be me. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a comic. I'm going to be everything I want to be. I'm going to get my black belt. I'm going to do all the things I want. Wow. So my only regret maybe is that I didn't wrestle in college because I was a really good high school wrestler. And I went, I should have wrestled D1 and I should have been, a, a, but, but okay. All right. But that's honestly my, my only regret. Um, um, and I think that, you know, I've made mistakes, of course, and, and you've, you've, you've tangled up with the wrong kinds of people and things like that. You know, man, if I went back in time, I would have made different mistakes. Right. I always quote this Zen, this Zen poet who wrote a book I read when I was a young man, and the book was titled One Continuous Mistake. <laughs> right. That's what life is, and that's the point. You, 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 will not, you will not see God sipping margaritas on a beach. Except hopefully... The creation of our children are not mistake. I, I'd like to think so, no? Well, the children, though, come, you know, I'll, I'll quote Khalil Gibran. Yeah. They come through you, not from you. <laughs> and so, man, woe to the person, who, woe to the parent who, who is treating their child as a blueprint of themselves or at least a second chance for themselves. Right. Not a good idea, man. You got to let those kids breathe and they will scare you. They will disappoint you uh, and they will, they will surprise you. And that's, that's what's wonderful about this limited but infinitely complex creature called a human being. So yeah. be, a little bit, take, be a little bit kind to yourself. Take, take the, existential, uh, the existentialist view of humanity. You're flawed from the start. You'll be flawed at the end. You'll have regrets. But thinner, but thinner, but thinner. You'll be thinner, man, <laughs> and that's the point. Self-restriction, but man, you'll be more wrong than you are right. You'll take more than you give. And that's probably inevitable. But, um, you know, you keep trying. And I, I, I really appreciate talking to you, man. Uh, you are a cool dude, let me tell you. I don't use... No, you Thank you, you, man. Uh, last, uh, last thing. Any, I know that you told me offline when we were texting to each other that you have a whole bunch of events coming up. Do you want to mention some of these to, the, to our audience? Yeah, so I, I just went through a special forces training thing with Tim Kennedy. He took me through all this tactical training. And so I'm doing this show called Best Of with Brian Callen on YouTube. Nice. I interviewed Sammy the Bull Gravano. I took him to dinner, you know, the, the <laughs> underboss. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. I flew him, out, flew him out to L.A. It was just, I just wanted to see, he, he tells great stories. I wanted to see what that was about. I went python hunting in, in Florida. I have a lot of plans. I'm doing a lot of things. So that's my show. Um, I'm coming out with my special man tier September 3rd. I'll, I'll do Rogan and I'll, I'll talk about it then. Okay. Uh, so I'm excited about that special. And uh, I think I'm going to, I have a, I'm going to start my own podcast. Um, you know, I, I think I'm going to start my own podcast and I want to talk to people like you because I have so many questions for you. I have so many questions. Oh, I look forward uh, to it. Anytime. I want to talk about the parasitic mind. I want to talk about all the things you, you've read because uh, 
you, you're, what you do is way more interesting to me than what I do. And, and, and I have questions that are way more um, important to me than anything you could ask me. So uh, I hope you're going to be a guest on, on the new podcast. A- anytime. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Ryan. Stay off. Stay off uh, we'll, talk, we'll say goodbye offline. Such right. a pleasure meeting you. Hopefully we can stay in, in contact with one another. Please, if you come to L.A., dinner's on me. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much, buddy. Let me, let me shut it off for a second. Hi, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed my terrific chat with Brian Callen. What a great guy. In any case, if you'd like to support my work, you can do so in one of several ways. You can go to my donation platforms, uh, be it PayPal, Patreon, and or Subscribestar and donate. If you're watching this uh, via YouTube, at below the description section of the clip, there is a thanks with a heart icon that you can use to donate uh, in support of my work. You can, of course, also make sure to subscribe to the channel and to the podcast. You can head off to Apple and rate the show, hopefully five stars. Uh, All sorts of ways by which you can support my efforts. I hope that you'll consider doing so. Uh, And I'm very excited for the upcoming guests. Many, many fantastic guests. Stay tuned. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Ciao.